0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In Shakespeare's plays, Rome as a Setting invites new kinds of questions. In a narrative universe separate from the claims and demands of Christian theology, how do characters interact with right and wrong, with duty and pleasure, with life and even with suicide in the new testament rome is no single setting but creates different sorts of scenes in which different sorts of books emerge and because all politics is in some sense dramatic different orders of power and duty and justice promise and threaten to emerge whenever rome is on the page as the name of a place or as an apocalyptic symbol of power abused John Dominic Crossan's new book, Render Unto Caesar, examines two ways in which Rome sets the scene for two different New Testament texts before posing questions about what Rome and empire and civilization itself might signify for us latter-day readers. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have him back on the show. Thank you for uh, joining us again, Dominic. And as always, Nathan, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's start out with a a distinction that your book uh, begins with and unfolds uh, and really carries out throughout the book, and that's between the things of Caesar and the things of God. What are some of the New Testament passages in which that distinction emerges most prominently? And, you know, how does this book draw from and also diverge from the way the New Testament treats those distinctions?
1: Okay, I start actually with, of course, the the tribute coin, the coin that's offered to Jesus. He doesn't carry one himself, by the way. And he asks about the inscription. And the inscription on there is, in Greek, Theos, Sebastos, Kaiser, which simply says, nice and succinctly, in three words, Caesar is God. (laughs) Kind of get over it. What's your problem? Caesar is God. So he's presented with an equation between Caesar and God, and he immediately makes a distinction. The things of Caesar and the things of God, whatever they are, They ain't the same. So that really sets up my question. The question then for the book is in the first century, that's in the New Testament, how do they reconcile the problem of living under both of them? Because it's nice to say they're theoretically distinct, but human beings then and now are living under both of them. So how did the New Testament reconcile them? And I look actually at three instances in there. First one is the book of Revelation in which uh, Rome is actually excoriated, demonized, Satanized. I look at Luke-Acts, considering that as a single volume, not a book in its sequel, but a single planned, written, published book in two volumes, Luke-Acts, I call it, in which Rome is sort of canonized. The future belongs to Rome. Then I look at the third one to say, okay, if we have these two disjunctive options in the New Testament, How did Jesus himself, the historical Jesus, how did he live under Caesar, which he had to do, and under God, which he did? So I ask really three questions. What about the book of Revelation? What about Luke Acts? And what about the historical Jesus? And the answer is, of course, that I think the historical Jesus
0: is normative in the New Testament and for Christians. Very good. We're going to get back to the content of the book, but I do want to pose another question about the form of the book. You broke down the three major divisions, and I appreciate that. But one interesting feature of this book is that it begins not with an introduction, but with an overture. So what work does that operatic opening (laughs) to the book do?
1: Thank you for getting that. Look, it, it goes back to 1945 to 1950. I was a boarding school student in uh, St. Eunice College in Letterkenny, in County Donegal, and our president liked the, the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. He loved them. So every year he mandated that we students had to put on for Christmas before we went back for Christmas break at Gilbert and Sullivan. So, for example, in if you take um, HMS Pinafore, there is an orchestral prelude, let's call it, and the melodies that you catch in that orchestral prelude are the melodies that come up again and again throughout the operetta. So when you hear, for example, a policeman's not is not a happy one, you recognize, oh, that's that melody we got in the overture. So I use an overture. I use it to mean something that you don't just get over at the beginning, like a prologue, why I wrote this book or something, but something to hold in your mind, like a melody in the background throughout the entire book. So an example of it as a text that when I love is Barbara Tuckman's great book, the Pulitzer well, Prize winning book, actually, The Guns of August, about the first year of World War One. <laughs> maybe an appropriate thing to be thinking about at the moment, the first year, the August, the first month I meant of World War One. And she doesn't begin with anything that happened in 1914 or even led up to it. She begins with the death of, I oh, hope I get it right now, um, uh, the king, the king Edward the seventh, and the seven crowned heads of Europe who rode in his, in his funeral, and it's all about that. And you say, What's that got to do with 1914? There's nothing to do with 1914. She begins with the, a funeral for monarchy, a funeral for imperial dignity, as it were. And that's an overture, that's not just something you read and say, Oh, that was interesting. He, he was buried and with kings in his procession, it's like a prelude that. What we're going to be watching is the death of empires, the Hohenzollerns, the Habsburgs, the Romanovs, and the Ottomans, too, by the way, and the death of kings, the death of monarchy. So it's an overture. It's something. Keep this in mind throughout the entire story. Let it be a melody in the background.
0: Very good. I wasn't planning on asking this question, but uh, are you familiar with the uh, YouTube clip, I am the very model of a biblical philologist?
1: <laughs> a no, I don't Oh, think I, know I, that. I, I
0: am gonna to have to send you the link after we get done recording okay. because I, I now that I know that you love Gilbert and Sullivan and you're also oh. a biblical scholar, I mean that uh, that couldn't be a more perfect musical number to yeah. send your way. So expect another Play email back. from me, sir. Expect another email. <laughs> They got in early into
1: my imagination, really. I loved it because because it was every Christmas, you know, so it meant the Christmas vacation was coming and it was great fun to preparing all of these. And I I am the very modern modern major general. (laughs) I know the croaking chorus from the frogs of Aristophanes. (laughs) Yes, yes. I knew a lot of it by heart, honestly, when I was just hearing it. We did it for a whole week before we left for Christmas, every night. So I I know
0: a lot of this stuff by heart. Excellent, excellent. Well, back to the book, back to the book. One tension between the synoptic gospels and the New Testament apocalypse that you note very early on and return to often uh, in the course of the book is the interval between Revelations soon and the uh, Acts notion of already here. So what differences emerge spiritually and politically between these two eschatologies? But well, I think the expectation
1: uh, in the general matrix in which Jesus operates and everyone in the New Testament operates was, of course, that God is going to eventually ha- clean up the mess of the world. That's, that's a fancy explanation of eschatology. Eschatology means this is God's world and it's a mess. It's unjust. It's warfare. It's violence. God's got to clean up the mess of the world. OK. All right. That sounds like God's going to do it. All we have to do is wait, hope, pray, of course prepare for it, but God's going to do it. Now, the message of Jesus, as I understand it, is not in contradictory to that, but it is development of that. It says, wait a minute. No, God's not going to do it for you. You're going to do it with God. Get with the program. I think that's what Jesus said. Get with the program. The kingdom of God is already here waiting for participation. (laughs) It's like it's always been here waiting for you to participate. That's very different. Revelation, of course, is talking, first of all, that the first coming of Jesus apparently was a failure. The incarnation didn't do it. That Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a peace donkey, let's call it. But he's coming back on a war horse to slaughter people. And we have to get in a minute to say, say why it says that. But that's a totally different vision it's a contradictory vision it's not a development so if the kingdom of god is was already here with jesus i don't see anyone slaughtering romans under jesus with jesus by jesus for jesus
0: but i do get it promised soon in the book of revelation and i want to i want to jump on that image for a moment of the procession because another of the uh historical examinations that you take on is this uh this Greek word parousia, uh, which is a familiar one for anyone who's who's taken a New Testament Greek class. And you note that uh, parousia imagery in several places borrows from common customs surrounding imperial processions in which the people of a city would go out from a city's gates, meet the approaching emperor or the agent of the emperor, and then return to the city with the emperor in their midst. And, you know, this is a this is an image that I've seen in a number of you know, New Testament studies books, commentaries, especially on, I think it's First Thessalonians, but I should have looked that that's up before we recorded. Uh, but um, in addition to First Thessalonians, which New Testament passages make more sense when you know about these customs of the imperial procession into a city?
1: Okay, so the word parousia or parousia is, is simply an ordinary word for a visit. But if we were talking, say, about a visit of the Queen of England, to this country. That's a formal state visit, we'd say. It's not just he's dropping in as a tourist. It's a state visit. So during the Pax Romana, and I suppose everyone who's reading Paul would have lived during the Pax Romana, the advent of an emperor or an imperial delegate, unlike, say, the advent of Alexander, (laughs) Alexander the Great, the Gaza, say. (laughs) He's coming and you it's celebration. It's a, it's a job well done. He's not coming, of course, to conquer or anything like that. So the doors, if you still have doors, by the way, if you still even have walls, are symbolically thrown open and everyone rejoices feasting and it's great. Now, Paul, Paul, that's the word he uses. By the way, Revelation doesn't. Paul uses that word for the coming of Jesus. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, for example. And clearly it imagines the coming of Jesus not to punish you for your failure, but to celebrate you and congratulate you for a job well done. It's a visitation in the sense of triumph, feasting, everything else. So when Paul imagines, and he does imagine, the, if you want to use the term return, though he never wouldn't use that term, the coming in this sense, and and hear the word The coming of the Roman Empire, he's always been there. I mean, there's statues of him everywhere. And he's on all the coins. So it's not like, oh, I didn't know he was around. He's here. No, coming has has the connotation of someone who's always present, but now we're really celebrating that presence. That's the way Paul sees it. Now, John John of Patmos in, in Paul of Tarsus, when he sees the coming of Christ, He's coming as an emperor to slaughter you because you have rebelled against him in plain language. We're back to Alexander the Great. So there's a completely different idea between the coming of the second coming, as we use it, or that term is never used in the New Testament, let's call it the second coming, in Paul for celebration and in John of Patmos for vengeance, let's put it, slaughter.
0: And it's interesting, one of the pairs of images that uh, you dwell on, and of course, I mean, it's familiar to people who have studied the New Testament apocalypse, is the beast on one hand and the, the harlot or the whore of Babylon on the other hand. And, and I think that, you know, your reading there is interesting because, you know, you talk about two aspects, if you will, of Rome's power. The, the beast represents the conquering military power of Rome the harlot on the beast represents the the sort of seductive commercial and cultural if you will power of rome how do those two relate in the vision that the new testament apocalypse sets forward and it's a fascinating difference because let me put it this way we talk
1: about roman imperialism and that's correct of course it's the roman empire and we talk about roman imperial theology at least i do now Rome wasn't in the interest of just grabbing land because it liked land. <laughs> it looked across the Irish Sea and says, No way do we want them. It's too cold over there. They were, and I'm not trying to be with it at the moment, Mediterranean globalization is what Roman imperialism was about. They were creating a global network of trade, business, whatever you want to call it, commerce, all around the Mediterranean into the great rivers, as far in, the, say, as the Rhine, the Danube and the Great Desert, so great rivers to the north, deserts to the east and the south. This is Romanization, and it's about business. <laughs> I, I think the first person who says, it's the economy, dummy, Caesar Augustus. It's about the economy. So globalization is what you might call the exterior, the body of which imperialism is the soul. They're not, you can't really separate them in a way as if this is just a little thing that they do. So that's the thing that that John has to face. And on one hand, the beast, he takes this over, of course, from Daniel 7. The beast is the Roman Empire, and as all the Roman emperors, he mentions, uh, he numbers them at least. And of course, it is above all Nero, not Nero as the one dead by the late 60s, by suicide to avoid assassination, but the Nero who was believed to be coming back, who had gone beyond the Euphrates and was waiting to come with the Parthian hordes to destroy Rome. It was a Jewish dream and therefore a Christian dream or a Messianic Christian dream that Nero ready vivus, we call it, Nero returned, is coming back to destroy the Roman Empire. Of course, the Roman Empire didn't have that dream. So basically then the question is this. Why? I mean, Rome is part of that. Why does he distinguish Rome from the Roman Empire? The beast handles everything else. And then all of a sudden we get the whore who rides on the beast, the whore of Babylon. We know Babylon destroyed the first temple. So Babylon is Rome that destroyed the second temple in 70. So we know that. And there's seven heads and all the rest of it in the seven hills. And, I mean, it's coded, Nathan, but it's not that difficult. I mean, it's a terribly simple book. The images are very clear what they mean, though twice he says, now watch very carefully. This requires wisdom. Right.
0: And, so, and real quick, you know, I mean, by, by yeah. the time by the time John of Patmos is writing, the historical city of Babylon has been pretty much leveled to the ground, hasn't it? Well, that's part of calling Rome Babylon makes
1: it, makes it say, well, Babylon destroyed the first temple and was destroyed itself. Rome has destroyed the second temple and will be destroyed itself. So it's hanging right, right. Really there as almost obvious. Of course it will. Babylon was, so will Rome. But come back to, to the city of Rome, the city on seven hills, is, of course, what he calls the great whore. And the reason he does that is because people going all across the Roman Empire on business, he says, but they're going to the great brothel of the Mediterranean. Rome is the great brothel of the Mediterranean, which seduces them. That's why he speaks so much about merchants. He, he doesn't talk about the legions at all. You see, why doesn't he mention the legions? That's what really holds Roman power. It's the merchants. The merchants will mourn the fall. So he's really after. Roman Mediterranean globalization because that's what he sees seducing his good Christians at Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis and all the other cities. They're not going over to worship Caesar, of course not. But they say, well, couldn't we at least be involved in Mediterranean business and globalization? Couldn't I sell my my olive oil in, in this great network and not just be stuck here in Ephesus with it? But for, and, and this is the one thing we have to pay very t- good attention to right now. We're doing the same thing. We're saying, for example, I'm not disagreeing with it, by the way, Putin's war is evil. We should have nothing to do with him. No business at all. We don't even want you to sell Starbucks coffee there. No business. That's exactly what John is saying about the Roman Empire. Don't have anything to do with it, don't get involved in the business. It is satanic. It is demonic. It slaughters Christians. Now we're getting into something else. It slaughters Christians and it will be soon demolished by Christ. That's his message. And we should understand it quite clearly in today's context.
0: Mm -hmm. And I I want to press on that point for a little bit because uh, that mass slaughter that Revelation talks about, Uh, You cite scholars who deny any kind of mass slaughter there in the first century of the common era. And you make your own case as well that Rome did not kill massive numbers of Christians. And the question that occurred to me is that when I talk with people about police violence in 20th and 21st century America, often people speak and write about a massive problem with police violence, even as the raw numbers of people killed by police hovers around a thousand, each year in a nation of 300 million. Now, the Roman Empire's population was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of that. So, I mean, is something analogous happening rhetorically? Could it be a few hundred Christians who have died, and John of Patmos, you know, in in his apocalyptic vision, talks about that as a mass slaughter? Or to describe it that way, would that get something fundamentally wrong about the New Testament apocalypse?
1: Okay, let me start with Rome and then get to American. Don't let me forget both parts. Because oh, by second. all
0: means, by all means. Yeah, I died. that was a very long question. So thank you for your oh, patience.
1: <laughs> I find this since I passed 85, by the time I got finished with the first question, I thought, what, what was the second? I know there was a the second. Anyway, <laughs> no, here's what happened actually in terms of scholarship. Here's the scholarly problem behind the book. The, the answer used to be simple. There was a consensus that John of Patmos Wrote Revelation under Domitian in the 90s. And I agree with that, by the way. That hasn't changed. And therefore, they said, since he says Rome has slaughtered Christians, there was, there must have been a huge persecution under Domitian. And Domitian, you know, was one of the emperors who was assassinated. So maybe he was a bad emperor. So that suits us. And that's pretty much the way I've learned about Revelation. It's uh, talking as did about- I.
0: As did I. Yeah.
1: Now, at the moment in scholarship, there is, I think I'm going to call it con- consensus, that first of all, there is no evidence, Let me put it negatively, there is no evidence whatsoever of any persecution of Christians as imperial policy or practice under Domitian or by the Roman Empire at all. Now, we're not talking about small local nastinesses, which could be <laughs> very nasty if, for example, you're celebrating a feast uh, on, a, on a street for the local god and the Jews won't come out to play and the Christians won't come out to play and they smash their windows or something. I'm not talking about that, of course, of course. And it's not nothing, but I'm not talking about that. We're talking about policy and procedure of, on the imperial level. First of all, there's no in, in influence, uh, no evidence of it. But I want to press that and say there's evidence against it. But what I'm doing is by looking at two other sets of letters comparing them with the seven letters that you know so well in the book of Revelation. I'm looking at the letters from a Christian, Ignatius of Antioch, who is traveling west under guards to be executed in Rome around the beginning of the second century, maybe around the time that Revelation is written, by the way. It's fairly late anyway. And he writes, say, to Ephesus. He writes to Smyrna. He writes to Philadelphia, three of the cities. And there's not a Hint anywhere, in his seven letters, by the way, (laughs) everyone likes seven letters, including Paul, of any persecution. You think he might say at least, I congratulate you from the past for your fidelity under persecution. He's all worried about current administration, obeying the bishop, keeping the elders. There's not a glint. Now you could say he left it out. He knows all about it. Okay, a second set of letters by Pliny the Younger. Stuck up at the Black Sea coast, now in the news. He's he's there to, to figure out what's wrong with this province of Pontus and Bithynia that's having all sorts of problems. The last two um, governors have been fired. So Trajan sends him there to clean up the province. And listen, he runs into people called Christians. And this guy who's as embedded as anyone in the aristocracy of Rome, he's the son of a friend of Tacitus, Suotomenius, he's a a son of Pliny the Elder who died at Vesuvius, he doesn't know what Christians are. He's never heard of them. He has to write a letter back to Trajan to say, what do I do? And of course, Trajan writes back to him and says, well, you know, just have them come in before our statue and offer a little incense and let them go. Let them go if they do that and don't ask any more questions. And if they refuse to do that, that well, they're being stubborn, so punish them for stubbornness. But don't take any anonymous accusations. We don't do that anymore. I mean, that's amazing. The Roman Empire has been persecuting Christians from a base in Rome, and Pliny the Younger doesn't know about it when he first runs into them. I'm going to say, as a historian, there were certainly, okay, that's a historical judgment, certainly, no such imperial persecution of Christians before about 250. So now, that leaves us with the question, which scholars have today, by the way, and they're not answering it too much, then why does he make up this story, which technically now is a lie, historically, and he must know it, it's not a mistake, he himself is in exile on an island, Rome hasn't assassinated him or executed him, why does he make up this story that Rome has been Slaughtering Christians, which is the only reason why Christ is coming back in vengeance to slaughter Romans. Why make up such a story? So that is the problem right now in scholarship. And people should know that. that that's what scholars are trying to figure out. Why does he say it happened when it didn't?
0: Right. So let me pose this question, because, again, I'm trying to get my imagination into this. racism the scholarly question right we'll, we'll get to america here in a moment but i want to follow okay, up on the right. scholarly don't question for a moment Be, because again i can easily imagine uh and in fact i don't have to imagine i mean i've read uh you know 17th century anabaptist texts i've read other texts where local riots i'm going to call them that turn violent and kill people get labeled as the actions of an empire even if the emperor never gave an order, or maybe even wasn't even aware of them, right? So, I mean, the Anabaptists write this about the Lutheran kings, they write them about the Catholic kings. Um, again, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, that rhetorical transformation, if you will, from, you know, people who are affiliated with the emperor to the emperor himself is one that's not uncommon in a lot of texts over the sweep of history. And, you know, I guess my, my own inclination, uh, and it might be a bad inclination, you can tell me if it's a bad inclination, is not to call that a lie, but to call that a rhetorical maneuver. Does that distinction, go ahead. No, it makes absolute sense to me. In fact, I
1: would even say we're, we're the, the last six or seven years in this country, we've experienced people feeling that the, the government is against them. I'm not saying who or what. But that the government is against them because anything that happens, it's the government that's doing it. I understand that. Now, in this case, though, we have to work with two points. You mentioned them already, oppression and attraction. And really, I'm going to say that attraction gets at least as much attention, at least in the second half of the book, that the Roman Empire is attraction, is attractive. And that's what he's after. Now, it's, it, it could be that. It could be that, what you're saying, that there's a lot of local stuff. But we don't have evidence of that. We really don't. Where, where is it in Paul? That really, you know, he seems to have more trouble with Christians than he has with, with, the, with the Roman Empire. So I don't, I don't think that works as well for it. Though, yes, it can certainly happen that a large group of people can feel that, the people are against them and the government is defending them or even the government is behind them. Yeah, that can happen. There's always been small groups that feel persecuted by the world, not, not just by their neighbors, but by the world, <clears throat> whether they're persecuted by the world or just ignored by the world. or So, yes, that could be. I don't think I don't think it fits the situation. Aiden. That's the only reason.
0: OK, all right. Well, I want to turn to that other vision that you just now yeah, mentioned, the, the attractive vision. And this is Lukacs. So as you set up the political examination. What? Oh, go ahead. Can sorry. No. By all means, oh, we, we never did get to America. Go ahead. Talk about America. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Thank you. Now, which one of us just forgot there, Dom? I think I forgot and you remembered. So I think, I, I think you give yourself not enough credit, sir. <laughs> okay. No, um, it's
1: fascinating. Yeah, because in this case, we're talking about racism. And a long history of racism based on slavery and everything else, and, and different forms of slavery and a cold war of slavery. After it, the fascinating thing about the Roman Empire is they had no racism. I mean, they had what I'm going to call it sneerism. I mean, if you weren't really a Roman, you mean you just were. I mean, these, you know, these peoples, but they didn't. They had a Roman emperor, oh, let me think, by the year 200, because the meritocracy eventually of the legions was inevitable, they had an emperor from Libya. Right, right. I I honestly don't know his color. Would he have been dark brown, black, white, pale? You know, I right. don't know. Or a um, Berber
0: like a, like Augustine.
1: Yeah, he might even be in a Berber. I mean, I don't. He was from Algeria. Cousin from Algeria. He was from Libya. Well, sure, because, sure, sure. You know, talking talking by the Maghreb. In any case, so you know.
0: Yeah. But well, you know, <laughs> nomadic tribes, nomadic tribes. And they had no problem. Even
1: uh, you didn't have to be from Italy, let alone from Rome. You could have Spaniards uh, being emperors. Racism, as far as I can see, didn't. It wasn't a category. It wasn't that they were on prejudice. They had different prejudices, but race wasn't one of them. So. I don't find anywhere happening to Christians. Uh, let me back up a bit. For example, the way the Roman Empire handled Jews. Now, they would have said, if I could use this language, they're weirdos, but they're, they're ancient weirdos, and they've been around a long time, and they were on the right side with Julius Caesar against Pompey. Um, <laughs> that, they could have gone either way, but anyway. Um, Pompey was over there desecrating their temple. So of course they were for Julius Caesar who was over there slaughtering Gauls who wasn't bothering Jews. But they said, Romans said, why don't, they don't want to to worship our, let them offer sacrifice for the emperor, not to the emperor. That's what we do. You people offer sacrifice in your great temple over there. In fact, we pay for them. Every day, offer sacrifice to the emperor. I mean Rome kind of bent over backwards. And that's when the things that Luke Acts has to be very careful about. If he's saying that we Christians are not Jews, then that means you're a new religion and we don't like new religions around here. And we've gave privileges to the Jews, but if you ain't Jews, you don't get them. So I don't think Rome ever handled Jews or Christians in, if I could use the term, a racist sense. They tolerated them, they knew they were different, um, but they, I think they went, they leant over backwards to try and be tolerant. Not, not because they were so nice and tolerant, they were interested in something else. If you're interested primarily in business and commerce, then you tolerate a lot of other things because they're good for business. Because the first person who ever said it's the economy, dummy, was a Roman. Right, right. So race Racism, then, we just don't care. We don't care. It's not important to us. And even your religion, as long as you don't, you know, the emperor is God. But if you have your own little God on the side, that's fine. That's fine. It's like a God on the side. And if you think it's, the most important, by all means, just, you know, when we're having a festival for the emperor, just, you know, stand up for the national anthem, as it were. <laughs> don't don't refuse to stand up for the national anthem because that'll annoy us. But what you're really thinking when you're standing up, eh, we don't care. Business.
0: Right, right. Let's get to that second vision, though, because <clears throat> in, in Luke, Acts, Uh, You present, you know, not a vision of a murderous, bloody empire, but an empire that seems bent on uh, rescuing followers of the way. Let's go ahead and use the the phrase that Axe uses, Uh, you know, from local authorities. But before we get there, um, you spend a lot of time in this book talking about Luke Axe as a single volume with two. No, a single work with two volumes. There we go. Instead of a. A standalone book that later on spawned a sequel. So something more like First and Second Kings, something less like First and Second Corinthians. Uh, Briefly, uh, what is the case for that? And then, I mean, what are the implications uh, when we read Luke-Acts in the context of Rome? Let me start with scholarship. I mean, everyone
1: knows that the same person, whoever he is, we call him Luke, but whoever it was, the same person certainly wrote those two books. There, there's nothing new there. I'm completely with the consensus on that. And everyone says that you can look from the second book, looks back to the first one. That's obvious too. I'm saying, and I'm not saying something people don't know. Scholars all know this. If you look at Fitzmaier's uh, great book on Luke, he knows this. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to write the, the theology of Luke at the very beginning to include Acts. We uh, Scholars know that, but when it comes to push comes to shove, they kind of say, well, it's the first book and a sequel, which would mean that when he's writing the second book, <laughs> he, he's thinking of the first one, but when he's writing the first one, he ain't thinking of the second one. My analogy is the two movies, Jaws and Jaws 2. There never was a Jaws one.
0: Right, right. No. That's,
1: it, in a way that sounds trite, I realize that. But if you say that, all right, my argument is, that Luke conceived and planned, constructed and wrote and published a single book in two volumes. The reason he had to do that is a simple technical or logistical problem that a parchment scroll, we're talking about parchment scrolls, could only be so long because the pages are glued together. And when you take it out like that and roll it up, there's great tension. They could snap, and besides a scroll, you have to be able to maneuver in your hands. So we're not talking about Dead Sea Scrolls now, <laughs> made, made from parchment. We're talking about papyrus scrolls, papyrus scrolls. And so if you want to write Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, John's gospel, you can do it on one scroll. And volumen is the Latin word for a scroll. So you can do it in one volumen, one volume. If you want to write a longer one, Think Josephus, one scroll to write his life, two scrolls to write against Appian, seven to write the Jewish war and 20 to write the Jewish antiquities. It's, it's nothing, you know, magic. It's just, he needs more, more stuff, more, more scrolls. So let me go back to that. Against Appian, two scrolls, the beginning, each of them is dedicated to the same person, the Paphroditas. the first scrolls begins, and ends looking forward to the second scroll, and the second scroll looks back to the first one. It's definitely written together. If you separated it, well, you could separate it, but the first one would tell you something's coming, and the second one would tell you you're missing something. You couldn't separate it. But that's what happened to Luke Acts. He wants to write a much longer gospel. I think he thinks he's writing a gospel, by the way. And it's the gospel of how they brought the good news from Nazareth to Jerusalem in volume one, then from Jerusalem to Rome in volume two, and then it ends, of course, as soon as Paul gets to Rome, end of story, and if you and I were doing a movie, we'd be screaming to say, we can't end it with Paul arriving in Rome because he's there on trial. What happened? Can't stop it there, but Luke stops it there because that's the end of the story, is when the Holy Spirit reaches Rome, and the manifesto is the future belongs to Roman Christianity, not Jewish Christianity. That's the theme, that's the thesis, that's the manifesto of Luke Acts. You separate them, you lose that, and therefore you lose the meaning.
0: I'm going to come back to the question of, of Jewish Christianity and Roman Christianity for in a moment, but first I want to ask two really quick, simple questions, just in case some of our listeners have hangups right now. One of them is, why is there a second greeting at the beginning of Acts if it is all one continuous narrative? Is that something that a later scribe added to the second scroll? Or is that something that would have been an intermission so people could go get popcorn? Or what's going on there when there's a second greeting to uh, Theophilus, there we go, at the beginning of Acts?
1: Well, that's exactly what you had in, in the two volumes of, of Contra Appian, Against Appian. The very first one is said to most excellent, it's the same phrase that Luke uses, to most excellent Epaphroditus. That's the sponsor, that's who's paying. <laughs> you know, the, the sponsor is not just your, your buddy that you're writing to. I don't know if Luke is talking about a, a person or a, or a group, but they're the sponsors, the patrons. So Epaphroditus gets it to most excellent Epaphroditus at the, op- and he gets it at the second one repeated. It should be repeated.
0: So it's it just conventional be. in these multi scroll works to greet the sponsor at the beginning of each scroll. I, I don't
1: think when you got the 20 scrolls to the Jewish war, or the Jewish antiquities. No, you're not going to do it there. Two scrolls, definitely. Definitely okay. do it
0: too. Very good, very good. But, well, and then, the, uh,
1: and then the, the closest example we have to look, and it's really close. It's very close is Josephus's Against Ampion, written around the same time in the 90s, as as both of these books we're talking about, Revelation and Luke-Acts. That's the closest example we have to it, and it does exactly what Luke-Acts does backwards and forwards.
0: Very good, very good. And then the second question, uh, and this is just so that you can make your case very clearly for our listeners, your case that uh, Luke is anticipating things that happen in Acts as part of a single literary action if you will how does that differ from certain readings of for instance isaiah as presenting isaiah as anticipating the gospel of matthew because i know that they're different phenomena but i want our listeners to hear you say how they are different phenomena
1: okay well the first one that everyone would see is at the very end of volume one but
0: that's luke's gospel
1: because the end of volume one he tells them to wait they're supposed to wait in jerusalem until they receive power from on high, from the Father on high, power from on high. Now, if you stop at that point, you have them waiting in Jerusalem from power. Okay, what happens? You begin the second volume, of course, the Holy Spirit comes. Well, you can guess because the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at the baptism. So you might have guessed, if you're watching sharply, that the Holy Spirit's got to come back. On the apostles. We call it Pentecost. So the, that's the first one. Now, somebody might say, well, maybe he wrote that as a book and they just touched up the ending of it. For <laughs> Okay, so I'm looking throughout as I'm reading Luke for things in Luke that can only be explained as, as presuming and preparing for acts. And the, the greatest one of them is, of course, what happens on the first day of Jesus's great preaching It happens in Mark's gospel and Mark, by the way, is a source, the major source used by Luke and by Matthew. And therefore, when we compare Mark and Luke, we can see very clearly where Luke makes big changes. And the clearest way to understand the author intention in Luke is to watch him change Mark. Leave something out, add something in. I'm not talking about minor stylistic improvements. For example, Mark begins the story of Jesus with a great day in the synagogue at Nazareth. Great day. The, the preaching is, is powerful. Everyone admires it. And there's healings galore. It's a magnificent launch <laughs> to the kingdom program, as it were. Now look at chapter four of Luke. Instead of that, there's a day of disaster, spectacular disaster in a synagogue on the Sabbath, at Nazareth.
0: Right.
1: Did I say Nazareth, by the way? I meant to say, when I was talking about Mark, I meant to say Capernaum. I think I said Nazareth. Sorry. The great oh, dude, of,
0: okay, I, I, I thought you said I Capernaum, did. but but we've
1: corrected it if you did. Yep. <laughs> if, I did,
0: if I did, it
1: should be Capernaum. Anyway, so he brings back to Nazareth. Now, it starts off, Jesus announces the... Uh, Isaiah that I be fulfilling this the the great day of Isaiah the liberation of the captives and everything and he says today is fulfilled in your in your sight so again this is present actuality as we talked about earlier right now it's filled and the immediate first response is they like it, it looks like it's going good then all of a sudden inexplicably Jesus insults them he tells two stories from the Old Testament where Jesus. Excuse me, where God prefers, it looks like, Gentiles over Jews. Not he, it's not that God likes Gentiles as well as Jews. It looks like he's preferred, God's gone out of his way. God's gone out of God's way. Let me avoid the heat. God's gone out of God's way to prefer Gentiles. It infuriates his audience and they immediately try to kill him. Now, if you're really reading that, and you know that Luke has changed Mark, you're asking, why on earth does he tell that story? Which makes no sense. Why would Jesus introduce Gentiles into this whole discussion and insult his audience? And then, by the way, the very next thing he does in Luke is go all the way down to Judea and go on speaking to Jews. If you're reading that, though, in terms of what's going to happen to Paul at Caesarea, at... um, that's where is it? It's Pisidian Antioch. If you see what's right, going to happen right. to Paul Antioch, that's exactly the same. Paul's going to go in there. He's going to give a speech that today is fulfillment. Everything looks good. Then he turns to the Gentiles and then all hell breaks loose. So I'm arguing that this is just one case. There's cases in there where they only make sense for what Luke is up to if he's already thinking Paul. I don't understand else why. And I would challenge any other scholar, you tell me why. Why does he have Jesus produce Gentiles and never talk about them again? I'd be almost killed. Mm-hmm. I think, no, there were not murderous Jews at, at Nazareth. That's a libel. And it's, you have to explain why it's there. It's not true. So it's, it's a fairly serious one, too. It's not just a little minor quibble that Jesus starts, say, at Nazareth rather than starting at Capernaum. If he did that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care. That's just um, poetic license, if you will, you know, make it more dramatic, mm-hmm. Started the day at Nazareth. Now, when you go to Luke, then you have to watch how many other cases there are of something that only makes sense when you know the future. For example... Luke sends Jesus, and this is in volume one, from Nazareth to Jerusalem through Samaria, which is looking for trouble. But he has no details about what he does in Samaria. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, of course, but that doesn't have to be in Samaria. But then when you turn to the second volume, they go out from Jerusalem through Samaria to the ends of the earth. Ah. So the first volume is Nazareth through Samaria to Jerusalem. The second is Jerusalem through Samaria to Rome. Got a nice parallel between them. I can't understand that, except it was planned from the beginning.
0: All and right. therefore,
1: I tried to understand it that way.
0: Okay. Well, I want, to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to turn to the question of the Jews, because your reading of Luke Acts interprets the two-volume work as a book that has turned against the Jews, in favor of the Romans, and honestly, in ways that kind of remind me of the literary career of Flavius Josephus, and we'll have more yeah. to say about Josephus later, but one of the things that, that I want to ask you about is, uh, how do those scenes that, as far as I know, only appear in Luke, uh, in which Jesus dines with the Pharisees, in which the Pharisees bring him warning about the plots of Herod? I mean, the Pharisees are far more sympathetic in Luke Acts than they are in Matthew or Mark. Um, And then the other part of it is, uh, you know, well, actually, let's address that first and then I'll have a follow-up question for it. But I mean, how do those sympathetic Pharisees fit in with this God has turned against Judea narrative?
1: No. Luke, using the author for a moment, has a serious problem I touched on before. The one thing that Rome did not like was new religions. In fact, that was, I think it was Su- Suetonius called, I think it was Suetonius called this a new superstition. New was almost a condemned word. Right, so he right. has to do something very delicate. He wants to say, now remember he's writing after the war of 66 to 74, when the Roman empire pen- penalized the Jews across the whole Roman empire, by the way, by taking the money they used to send to the temple and sending it to the, temp- to the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus the, the great in Rome. So, you know, it's, it's a dangerous time to be a Jew after 70s for the rest of the... So on the one hand, he wants to say, we're not a new religion. We're the true Jews. But we're not like those bad Jews that rebelled against you. We're very peaceful people. In fact, if there's any riots around, like at Nazareth, it's the Jews that do it, not us. So it's it's a self exculpation if you want to call it that but he has to be very delicate so it starts off clearly Jesus is a Jew he makes not the slightest problem with that but the Jews have refused to accept their Messiah so he's no problem of course which he knows quite well with all the prophecies he knows the Septuagint very well very very well and that he would say to Romans you see we are the true Jews. But, but but then he has to be careful. We're, 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 not, we're not the riotous type. We're the other type. So we're not new. It's a dance, to be honest with you. So throughout the first volume, Jews are fine all the way through. There's no problem. Jesus is a Jew, works with Pharisees, all good people, um, no problem at all. Though <laughs> one of the nicest people, by the way, in the first volume is that Gentile centurion <laughs> who has built the, the, the synagogue for the Jews. Remember, he comes looking for healing from Jesus. I think right, it's at Capernaum. Right. He, that's the model for the Roman, for him, because it's going to be very much like the second um, centurion, Cornelius, from uh, in the second volume. These are his ID Romans. So it's very delicate to watch him say, Jesus is a Jew, Jews are very good, good people, but, but we're the true Jews, because once they rejected their Messiah, Jesus, for him, and the reason says, he says, they rejected the Messiah because they were jealous when we brought in the Gentiles. That's his word, jealous. And that's why they riot. So if you hear, dear Romans, as of course you will, that everywhere we Christians seem to be, there seems to be urban riots and civil discord. Not us, not us, not us. It's them Jews. This is, right. a, this is an
0: apologia
1: pro vita Christiana.
0: <laughs> so just real quick, I mean, so how do the more sympathetic Pharisees fit into that? Because one of the things you just said is the changes that you see indicate authorial intention. Why would our, you know, probably Philippian, author of Luke acts be so interested in presenting the Pharisees in particular more sympathetically than Matthew or Mark did.
1: Well, even, even into Gamaliel, the second, remember in the second volume,
0: right? I had forgotten about that episode. Yes. Thank you.
1: Gamaliel advises them have nothing to do with these people. So he's the good, he's the good Jew as it were, because I think he is quite open, quite open to Jews I'm going to use the word converting to Christianity. Right. I don't know. if I honestly don't know if he would accept the word messianic Jews. If you ask Paul who he was, I think he would say a messianic Jew. If he, if he was giving you a, a full title, a messianic Jew. Sure, sure. He wouldn't say a Christian. I, I don't think Gamaliel would probably be pro-messianic ambus. But then, of course, they refuse to accept what Gamaliel says, and they stone Stephen to death, as you remember. So them's the bad Jews. So the good Jew tries to give advice to the to the um, bad Jews, as it were, and they stone Stephen, Stephen, so it doesn't work. That's the only reason I can think why he does. Bring him okay. in.
0: I, All right. I want I'm to ask you. Sure yeah. I want to ask you a translation question, because a couple of years ago, I got the chance to uh, interview John Kloppenberg about his his book, uh, Christ's Associations, uh, that talks about, you know, not only the synagogues of the Jews, but also the synagogues of the Thracians and other kinds of ethnic synagogues. And one of the cases that, or I I don't know if he makes this case, or if I just drew it from it, but uh, one thing that occurred to me is because you have these diaspora synagogues, you know, dotting the Roman Empire, that it might be better to translate the Greek Eudioi as Judeans rather than Jews. I mean, do you have a, a horse in that race, or do you think either translation would work, or do you prefer one or the other? Yeah.
1: First of all, I have great respect and friendship for John Klappenberg, and the, the, the stuff he has about those guilds and everything makes absolute sense, this is the problem precisely that Revelation is worried about. If you're if you're in the, the Christian guild as a religious guild, but you want to be in the oil people's <laughs> the the oil people's guild as well, it's it's the guild the the the, the crossing of guilds that we're really talking about. Um, where was I, what was I going to say about that? Uh, oh yeah, the no, it's gone. The Thracians. No, what was the other Yeah, thing yeah, so,
0: so should we translate the Judeo oh, as yeah. Judeans yeah. or I, as yeah. Jews? No, I
1: honestly think, I honestly think that is a red herring. Let me imagine this. Let me imagine the argument. Jesus is a Galilean. Mm-hmm. He's not a Judean. The Judeans are Jews, therefore Jesus was not a Jew. That, that, that makes all sorts of problems. Yes, you're quite right. A lot of people... Rome would have called Judea. But what would they have said when when Vespasian came into Galilee? Does he think he's attacking the Jews or the Galileans? And then he'd get on to the Judeans. It's a tortuous way, I think, of handling the problems that very often, what we're talking about, Luke or somebody else will paint the bad Jews. Mm -hmm. So let's not call them Jews. Let's call them Judeans. I don't think that's the way to solve it. I think the way to solve it is good history. You have a polemical situation going on in which you had the Essenes, say the the, um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and let's call them for want of a better name, the Messianic Jews. Four groups, all struggling with one another, all saying nasty things about one another, by the way. They're all Jews, whether we like it or not. And I don't think Judeans even though there is an argument for it, it's not, it's not crude. Rome, I'm sure if he had a, a, an official title from Rome, from Nero sending Vespasian off, he probably didn't say, go to Judea and Galilee. They usually say that uh, Herod was a ruler of Judea. No, he was ruler of Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. Uh, you know, good history, describe where it is and let them call it whatever they want. But... Galilee is filled with Jews,
0: <laughs> of okay. course.
1: All right, all if right. Galileans, I have no problem with that. I have no problem calling Jesus a Galilean as long as he understands a Galilean Jew.
0: Right, right. And I, and I guess the the the, the question then, I you know, and I'm and I'm trying to formulate this because you know, as I said, I mean, it's a line of thought that I, that is new to me within the last couple of years, so I'm trying to make sense of it. it, uh, it so is- I mean, you know not necessarily, you know, in, in order to avoid the polemical nature, I grant the polemical nature of these texts, right? But, you know, when, for instance, a centurion marches into Galilee, does he imagine, you know, those Eudioi to use the the Greek word, right, as people who are a diaspora people, or does he imagine them as uh, you know, people who are native to there. And then, I mean, if we, if we turn the corner from there to, for instance, the Ephesian synagogue of the Udeoi, are those native Ephesians or are they diaspora people, right? Because, I mean, I, I, I think of, you know, for instance, when I go into a, a pole town in Chicago or a Chinatown in New York City, I mean, you know, uh, it's clear to me that those are Chicagoans and New Yorkers, right? Mm-hmm. And they are also diaspora people. So, I mean, yeah. it, it, would that be something that would be part of the first century imagination? Or is that something that I am exporting from the 21st century back to the first century?
1: And that's a question I would really want to think much more about. Wouldn't you leave out that whole question. <laughs> okay. What would, what would Vespasian think? Because he came, they always came down from the south. Every time the legions marched, they didn't come down by ship. They came down through the south so the first things they hit sure. were Galileans. did they simply say well these these are not Jews so we just marched quietly through Galilee uh, until we did, did, did that say so with the, the Syrians they didn't start their fight at Antioch they marched through Galilee i think you know we'd have to say they considered that Galilee was already and was of course part of the rebellion now you could make an argument that part of the mismanagement of that country was that they had Divided it up. Um, this was a disastrous decision of Augustus to divide the country up. It would have been far better to have made it part of Syria, which a lot of the Jews wanted, by the way. But I, I don't think it helps in any way, shape, or form to do it. Even if the Romans would have said, "We're coming, we're coming against the Judeans," and by the way, we're killing Galileans on the way. I, I it makes it confuses the whole thing. I think, and I, I don't think it's helped.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I want to get to a couple more questions before we run out of time today. Uh, Dom, I've I've been preaching in churches with greater frequency and with lesser frequency for more than 20 years. And one rule I set for myself is that whatever reading I am preaching from is going to set not only the content of the sermon or the homily, but as much as I am capable of doing so, I'm going to shape the sermon so that it matches the form and the movement of the scriptural lectionary text as well. So this book's okay. closing section intrigued me. It's an approach to Jesus very alien to the work that I have done in the pulpit. So stepping away from the crucified one of, Re- of Revelation 1 and the one called a drunker and a glutton in Luke, you propose yeah. a, a sort of politics of Jesus shaped not by New Testament canon primarily, but mainly by, and I'm quoting you here, quote, the historical Jesus of Josephus, end quote. So talk for a moment about what picture of Jesus emerges there, and then talk for a moment about the theology and even the piety that such a maneuver might lead to. Is this a post-biblical worshiping community that you're imagining, or a thought experiment mainly for the classroom, or something completely different? And I know that was about six questions. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, let me under let me be very clear because people have
1: said in the past, well, he he trusts Josephus absolutely, but he doesn't trust the New Testament. Of course not. I read Josephus every bit as critically as I read Luke or Revelation or anything oh, and else. that comes
0: across in your book. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I so, didn't mean to so imply that. that. Right. Yeah.
1: Here was my problem. After, and it was a real problem, but I spent most of the time actually doing Revelation, because I hadn't worked on Revelation before. So I took probably a whole year on Revelation. Not so much on Luke Acts, because I'd done a lot on Luke Acts before. And then I, I, when I was ready to do the next one, I said, well, my editor said it too. You can't just stop there. You, you, you can't just leave people hanging. There's, got, there's these two discordant things, and, and you know, take your choice. Um, what about Jesus? So then, of course, i have written on Jesus, of course. But then what struck me was it doesn't make any sense to go into the New Testament and say, well, I've got, I've got Revelation, I've got um, uh, Luke, Acts, and now I'll give you a third one. Well, if you can't trust those two, how can you trust the third one? Mark, say, or somebody else, you know, I know, Paul, or whoever. So I thought, I'm going to see could I go outside the New Testament just as, a, as almost like a strategy and say, supposing before I get to the New Testament, because I do get to it, why if I go into Josephus and see where is Josephus a God and Caesar? Before I even get to Jesus, what about, I mean, he's got the same problem. He has to live under God and Caesar. So how does Josephus do it as a Jew? No, he never abandoned Judaism. He might have politicized for the Romans, but no. He wrote Jewish War to defend the Romans to the Jews and the Jewish Antiquities to defend the Jews to the Romans. So, yeah, he never he never became an apostate. So I wanted to see and w- one of the things that I discovered. Now, it's it's in plain sight in in Josephus. It's not that I discovered it in the sense in some forgotten manuscript. But I don't know if I've ever known another scholar to say it. And Jewish scholars should say it. As far as I can see, Josephus tells us between four BCE, an armed rebellion in which two thousand people were crucified in Jerusalem with the legions and 66 to 74, 500 a day when the Jerusalem fell, crucified, but again, the legions. There are controlled experimentation in massive nonviolent resistance in Josephus. And I'm not importing Christianity back in there. It's in Josephus. He, and he hates it, by the way. He's more tolerant, I think, of armed rebellion because that's what people do than he is of this. He calls it a more evil way with... with with cleaner hands, but less pure hearts, (laughs) cleaner hands. You don't, you don't come out killing, but you're, you're rebelling. So experiments with nonviolent resistance. That's where I put Jesus, by the way, before I get to it, but it's already there. He's not inventing it at all. Nonviolent resistance is there. In fact, just Josephus gives it a kind of a defensive name, the fourth philosophy. It's just a philosophy as if it was just talk. The other three, of course, as we know, are the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And these are all for Josephus, just talking schools. (laughs) They're actually political factions, of course, but he makes them just philosophies. We just talk. and the fourth philosophy, I'll talk. So in the first century, in Judea, if you will, (laughs) they invented nonviolent resistance because I can't find it anywhere else before. I don't mean an individual here or there, but as a controlled experiment against a, a pilot, against Caligula's statue, we have the evidence for it in Josephus, written through gritted teeth because he opposes it. So not much in the war, but not much more in the antiquities. So that's where I begin. Then Jesus, of course, having told us, that this whole idea of the Messiah coming, the world ruler coming from Israel was all a mistake. It was really Vespasian. He was coming from Israel and the Jews thought it was going to be a Jew. Instead, it was a Roman. Pure vintage Josephus. So Josephus, uh, excuse me, Vespasian is the Messiah. But then he turns around and calls Christ. He says, Jesus called the Messiah, Jewish antiquities. Jesus called the Messiah. So wait a minute, if Jesus is called the Messiah, is he in violent or nonviolent revolt against Rome? Vespasian certainly is a violent Messiah. So that gives me my next question. Then I go into, of course, the famous um, witness from Josephus to Jesus. And the important thing there is Joseph, uh, Josephus says Jesus was crucified he doesn't say anything about his closest followers being rounded up and arrested and crucified with him. And that's the distinction in Roman law between what you do with a violent rebellion, you crucify the leader and as many of the top lieutenants you can get your hands on in a row, so everyone gets the idea. A nonviolent rebel is crucified, let's say, alone because that'll finish the movement. The Rome, Rome never bothered round, rounding up non-violent rebels. Eh, you kill the leader and it'll all be over. So the very fact that Pilate judged Jesus worthy of crucifixion, that is public official execution, but didn't round up any of his followers or even bother to arrest them, tells me that the Roman judgment, according to Roman law, which says that the person who creates turmoil and Raises up the crowd. That's their law. Should be crucified, cast to beasts, or sent to an island. Roman civil law for nonviolent, we call them activists, Nathan. We call them, you know, nonviolent activists. They stir up the people, is the Roman expression. So we know from Pilate and from Josephus alone, if we nothing else, that Jesus was executed for nonviolent opposition, rebellion, resistance. Roman law and order. Then I go from that into the new Testament and to love your enemies, because that will make you heirs of God. But I, right, I use right. that as my guiding. Go
0: on. Okay. Very good. Very good. So, I mean, as far as, you know, the communities of Christ in the 21st century, I mean, is there something wrong going on when the texts of the new Testament are such a core part of their gatherings? Uh, I mean, should those communities shift away from the text of the New Testament towards something else? And if so, what is that something else? And if not, uh, how would you counsel those communities to approach the New Testament as they use them in worship? Well, first of all, I no. In answer to your direct
1: question, should they go? No, no. If somebody thinks, please read Josephus instead of The the medieval Christians, by the way, had set up a parallel between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Josephus' Jewish antiquities and Jewish war. They set up a lovely parallel between them. They never suggested they go from one to the other, but they saw that this whole Jewish witness sort of, quotation marks, corroborated their story. It wasn't just something they made up. So you have huge texts from the Middle Ages, Great concern, this, no Jewish authorities ever, ever preserved Josephus.
0: Christianity right. did
1: it, as you know. But you can see the medieval texts of it, and how they were doing it. They were u- doing it to see, to counterpoint the crucifixion of Jesus with the destruction of Jerusalem. Ah, it's divine vengeance. In fact, they put very often illustrations from the crucifixion in the text of the Jewish war. So you're counterpointing them deliberately. But in any case, no, no. I'm saying, of course, you read your New Testament. But for God's sake, and I'm using that deliberately, for God's sake, use your mind as well. Use your mind as well. God gave you revelation. God gave you reason. They're both gifts of God. Reason is history. Read, know your history. You can't mm-hmm. just go into the New Testament and say, well, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, whatever I think it means, it means. If you want to do that, by all means, go right ahead. If you want to do that, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm just saying, it's kind of like playing basketball without a hoop. I okay. mean, you can do whatever you want, and I, I'm as good as anyone. If there's no hoop there, I'm the, the greatest <laughs> player in the world. Playing tennis without a net. I mean, why would you try and read this without trying to understand it? Mm-hmm. Love the Lord your God with all your mind too. So no. Absolutely not. I read it more carefully probably than a lot of people who consider themselves evangelicals. Oh, well, with that, I agree. With that, I agree. I read it day in, day out for 60 years or more. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try to understand it. And I find it infinitely precious because I think the vision in there is important. But now, let me, I stand at the moment at the intersection of two vectors. One is the biblical vision that starts from the Torah and goes all the way through. It's a vision which is glorious because you can see its imagination of this biblical God and what this biblical God says. And you can see people working like mad to get around it all the way through, (laughs) including getting around Jesus and and his peace donkey. But I also want to look at human evolution. Now, let me be very blunt about this. Maybe you won't use this in the sermon, but maybe we should hear it. Our species, Homo sapiens, excuse the oxymoron, Homo sapiens came out of Africa 70,000 years ago. 70,000. And we basically declared war on the world. On the, It's called climate now. On the physical world, on the animal world, and on the human world. We have exponentially exponentially damaged all three. I don't, mean it's, I don't mean that we're doing the same now as the Romans did. Violence is exponentially increasing. So is destruction of the climate. God so loved the world, we're told, and everyone says that, including all my evangelical friends. God so loved the world, us in the world. Now I look at that from the biblical view and from the human evolution view. And I find I'm getting the same message because from human evolution, I'm getting the message. If I continue the trajectory, which is going this way, dear friends, if you continue to live the way you have been living with escalating violence and escalating damage to the climate and to the animals, you're not going to survive as a species. And if you think that God is going to intervene at the last moment, then you might as well think that God invented lifeboats and sent them to the Titanic. God didn't, God won't. So think both, be bilingual. (laughs) Know about human evolution and look at it. Look at it on the evening news at the moment, even if you don't get it. Then look at your biblical tradition. The whole sweep of the Bible, including the most glorious thing I have in the Bible, which is that people were really trying to live it, because if they weren't trying to live it, we wouldn't have so many excuses for not living it in there. Nice. It was all just just dreamy like Mickey Mouse, you know, fantasy land. We could read it happily and we'd say, isn't that lovely? Isn't that glorious? We wouldn't feel the least bit obliged. To say, well, I, I can't live up to that. So it would be a little bit like, now this is edged. You know, we, we have the Pledge of Allegiance and we say liberty and justice for all. And nobody accuses that of socialism or anything else because basically we don't believe it, Nathan. It's, it's just like dreamy stuff. You know, it's lovely stuff. It's like fantasy. If it wasn't fantasy and people start to say, we have to start living that or if our kids started coming back from school saying, how does this liberty and justice for all work, mammy, daddy? Then we'd start wanting to change the text. So when I read the Bible, what I love about it, and I mean this, is I see this glorious vision, and then I see ordinary people, me, (laughs) saying, yeah, but, um, yeah, but, but, you know, coming up with, great excuses how it really doesn't mean that or it means that in the future or it means that in heaven or it means that anywhere but not with caesar <laughs> so that's the way i love the bible that's why i've spent my life there
0: very good very good that was a great finale dom and now i'm going to ask you for a curtain call uh, <laughs> okay. i asking the questions during this interview so in the hospital in the spirit of hospitality i'm going to let you have a last word Uh, So here is your curtain call. What do you want our listeners thinking about Revelation, Acts, Josephus, or anything else as we head for the door? All right. If
1: it's important to you, please read it and please think about it. And remember that you love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your power and all your
0: might, but with your mind, too. John Dominic Crossan, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles.
1: Always, Nathan. Always, always a pleasure to be with you.
0: Anytime. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening in. The book is Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament by Harper One. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Brit Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.